Uh, those two passages that we read in uh, Jeremiah and Hebrews, <coughs> I think they go along well with our text for this morning um, for preaching because it shows the covenant faithfulness of God even when His people show the exact opposite covenant unfaithfulness. So if you would, please turn back with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. We've seen over the course of this book that the prophet was agonizing over these questions concerning the problems of evil and injustice. He wondered how it could be that God, who is just, could allow evil to go unchecked in the Holy Land, in His nation. The Lord's answer was that He was going to bring the Babylonians as His instrument of justice against the covenant unfaithfulness of His people, Judah. And this only led to more agonizing questions. How could God use a more evil nation to punish a lesser evil nation? Though admittedly, both of them were evil. The Lord revealed to Habakkuk that this was not going to be the final state of affairs. Um, In fact, that He would vanquish the Babylonians after He had fulfilled His purposes through them. And so it has become clear that God has not and He will not turn a blind eye to injustice whether from His own people or from the pagan nations. And this is where we're going to pick up now in uh, chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise, Selah. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation... You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. (coughs) At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. 
You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The choir master with stringed instruments. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this great encouragement in the midst of suffering and sorrow that we have refuge in the almighty God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this passage is introduced as the prophet's prayer, which is to be set to music. And indeed, it reads much like a psalm. Um, you see these pauses, Selah, Selah. <clears throat> now, this might be a bit odd. It might seem a bit odd when we consider that this entire book is a conversation between God and the prophet. That's what the whole book is. It's a prayer, right? But the reasoning for this portion to be set apart specifically as the prayer of Habakkuk, I think it becomes a lot clearer as we look at the content. Prayer begins, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. Habakkuk had questioned God about his seeming lack of activity in allowing evil to go unchecked in Judah. That's how this started. Habakkuk was grieved. He was a holy prophet of God. He was grieved by the sin that he saw around him, especially coming from the people that are supposed to be God's holy nation. It's one thing when lost act like lost people, but it's another thing when God's holy people act in an unholy way. And the prophet was grieved by these things. And God graciously explained it. He didn't owe this explanation to Habakkuk. Never does he owe us anything. But God graciously did explain it to try to calm his fears. He explained to the prophet what was really happening. Judgment day was coming in the form of the Babylonians. And then judgment would come for the Babylonians too. Things were actually the polar opposite of the prophet's perception. Or at least his initial perception. God was not sitting idly by while evil was allowed to rule the day. 
God was working such that justice would prevail throughout the nations, not just in Judah. He was going to work justice in Babylon too. And here the prophet acknowledges the fact that God is in fact at work and it causes him to fear an appropriate response. Because as one commentator put it, he saw God's judgments as certain and grievous. There would be no escape. And since the prophet understood that to be the case, he prayed, In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. And then this is an interesting phrase. In in wrath, remember mercy. This is Habakkuk's plea that God would restore Israel by the chastening of captivity. He knew it was certain. He also knew that God had a purpose in it. He knew that God would be just in completely extinguishing Israel. Israel was unfaithful. They did not earn the blessings of the covenant. They only earned the curses. And the prophet knew that. But here he gives a plea that God would purify and not extinguish His people. In the midst of these hard years to come, revive your people and make it known, O Lord. In your just wrath toward your covenant-breaking people, remember mercy. Or as Matthew Poole comments, whilst thy just displeasure burns against us for our sins, make it appear thou hast not forgotten to be gracious. Let thy people see thou rememberest mercy towards them. Scripture tells us that the unrepentant, wicked nations receive God's judgment ultimately in eternal damnation. They might have temporal judgments as well. They might lose a kingdom. Judah has a kingdom, was lost. Eventually, Babylon as a kingdom was lost. Show me where Babylon is on the map today. As a nation, you can't. It's not there. The geographical location is there, but the kingdom is not. But even more than this, the loss of a temporal kingdom, God judges eternally. Much more serious. But God's judgment against His own people is quite different than this. He judges the nations in terms of justice. And He judges His children in terms of discipline. Now in the two passages that we've already heard this morning, Jeremiah and Hebrews, okay, especially in Jeremiah, there was discipline. There was covenant faithfulness on God's part, but there was discipline also. Justice has already been paid to our sin in the person of Christ. Scripture says that there is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that does not mean that we're immune from temporal consequences of our sin. No, we're not going to face the wrath of God in the sense of His eternal wrath, no. But when we do dumb things, we get the result of doing dumb things. Kind of put that in common man language. Another passage in Hebrews. We read of the fatherly discipline that God bestows upon His people. And if you want to turn over there with me, it's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 14. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Of course, that's a reference to Christ. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. Catch that, that we may share His holiness. (coughs) For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Habakkuk had come to understand that the impending judgment that was to come upon Judah was for the good of God's people. He prayed that it should come, but that it should be to the praise of God's glorious grace, not merely His glorious justice. The holy people had become unholy. God was disciplining them for their good that they might once again share in His holiness. Likewise, God chastens us, His new covenant people. We never need fear that we will face His kingly wrath because He's justified us in Christ, but we do face His fatherly displeasure sometimes and the discipline that comes to it for our sin. But the good news is we can do so with hope and joy, knowing that while it hurts... It's for our ultimate good and that we may become holy as our God is holy. It yields fruit. It's only for a moment. But the benefits are forever. 
passage continues, God came from Teman. Now, uh, this is a reference to a place that's also known as Seir. This would be the land of Esau. Okay? God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. This is meant to point us back to the final blessing pronounced by Moses upon the people just prior to his death, and more importantly, to them taking possession of the Holy Land. So we're, he is looking at the prospect of them being thrown out of the land. But in his prayer, he's coming back to right before they took it in the first place. Um... Again, if you want to turn with me, Deuteronomy 33. Just uh, picking up in verse 1. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones, with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. His people who had whined and moaned and complained and rebelled this entire time in the wilderness. He loved his people. All of his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun. When the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. And then you skip down to verse 26. It says, There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help through the skies in His majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, Destroy! So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens dropped down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. In the midst of despair, there is a prayer of hope for restoring, for renewal. The prophet understands that the discipline is certain. We are going to be expelled. Babylon's going to conquer us. But there's hope. There's still hope. Habakkuk is recounting the work of God and making a people, a holy nation for himself. In this prayer, he is remembering the past mercies of God and thereby building hope for the future mercy upon the covenant people. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. Or the King James says, he had horns coming out of his hand. And there he veiled his power. Again, referring back, referring back, he's bringing imagery 
from past Scripture in. This is a, uh, a reference to when the covenant that they had broken was made in the first place. In Exodus 19... On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and very loud trumpet blasts, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then we see after the giving of the Ten Commandments, uh, we see now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet in the mountain smoking, Appropriately, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. That's the imagery we're pulling back here. The covenant's being made, and God is manifesting His presence to His now newly covenanted people. This is a covenant on top of a covenant, though. They were already His through the Abrahamic covenant. Now we're entering into a national covenant and that's the one that's been at the forefront throughout this book. That's the one that was broken. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. What we're looking at here is now the prophet is recounting the conquering of the land. Okay? He, he's harkened back. He's tried to make us think back to okay, this is when this covenant was made. This is what it looked like. God, the holy, living God has manifested His presence for His people and He has loved His people and He has promised them a land. And now He is delivering this land. And again, in the backdrop of we're about to lose the land, so we're looking at hope for the future. So He sends out pestilence and plague. He stood and measured the earth and He shook the nations. That's a great shaking. What happens when things shake? They fall. The peoples that were in the land before the Israelites came in, had to be expelled. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. We think of mountains as a place of refuge. Right? Mountains are sturdy. They don't shake. But at God's power they do. And in fact, these high mountains were brought low. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. This is the, this is the nations that surround the land of Israel. So think of this. This is such a great shaking of the nations. Okay, This is not just in the land of Israel, but it's reverberating into the surrounding area as well. That's the imagery. 
Okay? Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? So God is, uh, as it were, going through the waters on His horse, on His chariot of salvation, saving His people, delivering His people, (coughs) delivering to His people what He had promised by covenant. You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. That means pause. And reflect on what we just said. God has come down from heaven and fought for His people to deliver His people and to provide them with a land. Think of that for a moment. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Again, we see this imagery of sturdy mountains being shaken. They writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The people are conquering. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. This is supposed to make you think back to the time that literally the sun stood still as the people followed Joshua in battle. They needed a little more daylight, so God gave it. So this is is not meant to be metaphorical. Literally, this happened. And the prophet is trying to make the people think back to this. If the God who did all of these things delivered this land that we're currently in, we know we're going to lose it, but we're currently in it, and He did all these things to deliver us into this land, that's our God. We have reason for hope. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed now, I mentioned this uh, Wednesday night when we were talking about the covenant of works or the Adamic covenant, the covenant of creation or whatever you want to call it, that after that covenant was broken, we have the first promise of the gospel, the skull-crushing seed of the woman. And I'd said throughout the rest of Scripture you have this motif of the serpent people of the serpent bruising the heel of the woman's seed and the woman's seed crushing the head. Well, here you have one example. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. So you didn't just crush one or two of their heads. You crushed them all is the point there. All of them are crushed. Laying him bare from thigh to neck. So like the whole top half of the body. That's the idea. Laying him bare. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing 
as if to devour the poor in secret. So these warriors have come to scatter the people as if in secret, trying to be crafty and sneaky about it. But rather than being successful, the God, tur- uh, God turns the arrows of these people back on their own heads. Again, this idea of crushing the head. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And so, what we see in these verses, God faithfully fights for His people and delivers to them a land that He promised. But now, they have been unfaithful. And part of that covenant was if you are unfaithful, you will lose the blessings. So the prophet looks at the impending judgment and exile of the people and he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Judgment was at hand. As we mentioned before, this was not in the distant future as it was when we were going through our series in Micah. At that time it was distant. But not anymore. The prophet speaks as if he can hear the sound of the armies marching. And fear has gripped him. He describes his body as having no stability at all. His body trembled. His lips quivered. It was as if the solid bones which were meant to support his body had been eaten up and softened with rot. His legs were unsteady and trembling. The judgment of the Lord is a fearful thing. This was an appropriate response by the prophet. He knew it to be a sure thing. He knew it to be a just thing and a fearful thing. And likewise, we should fear before a holy God. Fear the way he feared. We should fear for our loved ones. We should fear for our nation. And sometimes we should fear for ourselves too. Again, not that we as his people are going to incur his eternal wrath, but quite frankly, discipline hurts. And it's a fearful thing. Um... I imagine most of you had a similar experience in your childhood that I had in mine. Probably not exactly the same. My father is six foot six, two hundred and fifty pounds. And if ever I thought that I was about to receive discipline from my father, that was quite a fearful thing. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something, though. It physically would hurt when he did that. But in point of fact, he never hurt me. He did that for my good. And it worked. 
I learned really fast. That hurts. I don't want that. So when dad says stop, I would stop. Dad says tell me the truth. I sure would. But if my dad could do that to me, how much more could the holy God of all creation do that to his children? It would hurt. It does hurt. But it's for our good. And the prophet trembled at the thought. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. That is, Habakkuk had come to understand that God is just in his dealings both with Judah and Babylon. Whereas he anguished over injustice at the beginning of the book, he now quietly waits in full confidence that the Lord will both discipline and avenge his people before either of them happen. And he ends his prayer this way. Though the fig tree should not blossom. Okay, figs are a delicacy. Okay. I don't have to have those to live. They're nice. I like them. But I don't have to have them. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines. Now we're seeing this start to intensify. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Or to put this another way, there is nothing to sustain me. All of the food that grows on the tree, all of the food that grows on the vine, all of the food that grows in the fields, the stock, the livestock, though they be all removed, okay, so there is nothing left to sustain me. Though that be the case, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation, God the Lord is my strength, not my wealth, not the things that Judah was trusting in at that moment. No, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And the imagery there is a picture we're in a high mountain, okay? And you're a deer. And you're hopping, okay, from one place to the other. One slip and you're falling down the mountain. The Lord sustains me in that sense. Okay? He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. In other words, He holds me. He doesn't let me fall. This is being prayed in the midst of impending judgment. The prophet knew that Judah was about to lose everything except the one thing that mattered, God. I want to close by reading the last verse of one of the hymns we just sung. 
It says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. God was faithful to His people. They did go into exile. They did receive discipline. And at the end of it, He brought them back. The prophet's confidence in the Lord was not in vain. He brought them back. And before He dispelled them again, He brought forth Christ. So, through this entire process, not only were the Jews saved, so were the nations, and so are the nations. And this is the gospel that we take out to the nations. This is the gospel that we have our confidence in, and this is the God that we have our confidence in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us as sons and that you do discipline us. Even though it hurts, we know that you're cutting away the sin. You're melting the dross away. And you are purifying us to be holy as you are holy. Help us to trust in you in the midst of suffering. Help us to see how you're working in our lives, in our community, even in our nation, and in our world. Help us to carry your glorious gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. Help us to carry it to the nations as we've been commanded to do. And glorify your name. In the name of Jesus Christ, by these things. And it is in His name, the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.